have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we've been spending our time beginning at Matthew's gospel, verse 1, and have been working through this text. And if you have a child, third grade or under, we have our normal children's ministry going on during this time, during the sermon, if you'd like to dismiss them. If uh, you have not been here for this uh, series yet, we just spent three weeks going through Matthew's genealogy, and today we are in verse 18, where we have the story of the birth of Christ. You got here just in time, if you haven't been here, Uh, but we've been sharing in some of the wonders that are hidden in in this genealogy, but today we know that this genealogy anticipates the birth of Jesus. And so this morning, it's time to press on and consider what Matthew says about the actual birth. So let's begin reading. Just read the text together. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew writes this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, Matthew comments, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Christmas is the celebration of a story, the story of how God himself came to be with us in the person of Jesus. That is why his name is Emmanuel, God with us. But there's something about this story, as Matthew tells it in his gospel, that I've been emphasizing over the past few weeks, and namely, that the story we celebrate at Christmas is not a self-contained story. I've been pushing back on that idea we have because we bring up the story once a year. Nor is it even the beginning of the story. It is actually the climax of a story. The climax of a story that has been building throughout the entire Old Testament. Scripture that now finds its crescendo in the coming of the Messiah. It is a story about how God brought us back to be with him once again. After humanity fell away from him because of sin. Matthew begins the whole book by writing the book of the genealogy, the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was a pagan living in Ur when God called him and promised to make of his offspring a great nation through which the world could be blessed once again. 
And as we follow the storyline of Abraham and his offspring, which becomes the nation of Israel, we discover that there is a particular royal family in Israel through whom God would bring about this entire blessing to the world. It's the royal line of David. And as we continue to read the Old Testament, we discover that in this royal line of David, there is promised a particular king who will inherit the throne and rule over the world in righteousness. That's why we have Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a vir the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we hear about this son two chapters later that his throne name, as we talked about in Sunday school, his ascension names will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as Mike just reminded us, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is no human or merely human king because there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness and, and, and justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, that's a statement that says God wants this to happen and you can't stop it. And Isaiah goes on to describe this king and his coming reign in some detail in several places in his prophecy and in other writings of the prophets. And Matthew, through his genealogy, demonstrates that from Abraham to the patriarchs, to David and the ruling kings, to those who descended from the last ruling king, Jesus is that one king who was promised. And that is why we have reached, at the end of this genealogy, the high point of the story, of, of, of this whole story. And the high point is in Jesus once the child has arrived, everything promised about that child is secured. But there's something else about the story that I want you to observe as we work beyond the genealogy and go into the account of Jesus's birth beginning in Matthew 1.18. It's about the way we have come to hear the story and read the story of Christmas. We love the story of, of, of the birth of Jesus Christ. That's why, you know, it's, it, it, we sometimes get criticized because we only spend a couple of weeks celebrating Easter, the resurrection, without which, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even be here. Well, if any of it didn't happen, we wouldn't be here. But there's something about this time of year where we really immerse in the story, and we hear the story in different ways, and all the parts of the story are sort of mixed in together. We're used to hearing and telling the story with elements borrowed from Matthew's account and elements borrowed from Luke's account. And the two gospel authors that, that give us the story, we, we tell at the same time. But what we end up with in our minds is actually a third account of the story that's different than what Matthew wrote alone and what Luke wrote alone. And furthermore, part of this third account of the birth of Christ in our imaginations include all of the extra traditions that we have picked up from speculating about the story, discussing the story, watching holiday productions of the story, uh, and, and hearing it read and explained for the various uh, dramatic and media productions about the nativity. For example, we imagine Mary riding a donkey to Bethlehem and the innkeeper turning them away, you know, and, and Mary giving birth the night she got to Bethlehem. None of those details are in the Bible. We just, uh, we sort of incorporate them into the story. And even though we remind ourselves 
every year there weren't necessarily three wise men. You know, there were only three gifts. It, it, you can't get three out of your head. You know what I'm talking about? That's just the way we imagine it. But my point is that our version of the story can be like one of those giant snowballs you probably rolled in your backyard if you're from Michigan or some other place up there. Uh, it starts out very white and pure, but as the layers increase and the snow gets heavier, it starts picking up all the grass and the twigs and everything from the, from the lawn. That's what happens to our version of the story of, of Jesus' birth. So when we read the story in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, it's difficult for us to, say, to, to hear what Matthew himself is saying because our imaginations are mixing in all of the other elements of the story. But Matthew says in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So Matthew has a very specific way that God is leading him to tell the story. And I want to ask you to block out all of the other ways we tell the story in our minds and to think about what Matthew has to say. What is Matthew's interest? What part of the story is God using Matthew to tell us? That's what we're going to find out this morning. So, when Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, as many of you probably know, when a marriage was arranged, there was a period of time in that culture when the young woman lived at home and was kept under the watchful eye of her father for a period of up to a year to make certain that she was a pure virgin before being given away because it would be a great shame and dishonor to either family if she were not. Then on the day of her wedding, the bride was escorted with her attendants to the house of her husband where there would be a celebration and feasting that could last up, for, uh, up to a day or a week even, depending on how much money they had. So this sentence here refers to this betrothal time when Mary was at home with her father, following the normal custom, under watchful eye. And yet, in the eyes of Joseph and Mary's parents, what no Jewish family wanted to discover they thought they had discovered. Before Mary had been given to Joseph, during this time of being guarded for the sake of purity, Mary was expecting a child out of wedlock, out of official wedlock. They were married in the sense of promise legally to one another, but they had not come yet together. You can imagine the shock and anger on the part of the parents and the extreme disappointment on the part of Joseph. Because at this point, there is no reason to suspect that there's nothing more than an ordinary young woman who is engaged in an ordinary way to an ordinary young man, descendant of David though he is. But Matthew explains this situation right away. He says that Mary was found to be with child, ek pneumatas hagiu, from the Holy Spirit, out of the Holy Spirit. The preposition ek that is translated from in a lot of our translations indicates source or origin or cause. And it has a special use when referring to the origin of birth. All parents have to face that awkward question from their inquisitive young children. Where do babies come from? And uh, you can thank me later that you might get the question today now that I said that. 
But there has been only a single time in human history when the question can be truthfully answered in this way. This child came from the Holy Spirit. And the way he came by the Holy Spirit is a mystery that God has not chosen to explain. Matthew simply states that Mary was found to be with child, ek pneumatas hahiu, from the Holy Spirit as the source, as the cause. And notice that this was a situation that Mary found herself in. In fact, there's a lot of passive verbs in this text. I'm not going to take time to point that out, but it's really fascinating. God is doing all of this work. But Mary found herself in this situation. She had done nothing to bring about this pregnancy. She was found to be with child. So what is Matthew's emphasis? How is he telling the story? His emphasis in this text is the fact that this child, Jesus, was placed in the line of David miraculously by God with no human agency, with no human father, with no human explanation. Mary had been promised to Joseph. She was being guarded. She had not been with Joseph. And the Holy Spirit, in a miraculous mystery, caused Mary to conceive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I can go back a couple of verses, we can see how Matthew anticipates that he will have some explaining to do in the first place. If we go back to verse 15, just to get a running start, just dipping back into the genealogy for a minute. Matthew continues the pattern that if you look at your Bible, you see this pattern again and again and again in his genealogy to show the origin of each descendant. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, which means that the origin of Eleazar was his father, Eliud. Eleazar was once the twinkle in his father's eye. There is no other need to explain Eleazar's birth into the world. And the same goes for all of the other men born in the genealogy up to this point. And for the men born after Eleazar, Eleazar becomes the father of Matan. Matan becomes the father of Jacob. Jacob becomes the father of Joseph. And the process by which these men are born to the world is so unremarkable that when we read the long genealogy, our eyes just start glazing over with, with all the best intentions we have in our Bible reading plans to read that genealogy and pay attention to it, especially when you get into Chronicles. You just, you just can't help it. You start thinking about what you got to get to the story later on. You know, your, your, your mind starts to wander because it's, it's just one person giving birth to another. And we know how this goes. It's the way human history works. That guy was the father of that guy and he was the father of the other guy. Nobody reading the genealogy is, is reading with fascination like, oh, look, Eleazar is the father of Matan. It happened again. Isn't this wonderful? Because it's what we've come to expect. But at the climax of this genealogy, Matthew suddenly interrupts this unremarkable pattern in anticipation of something that is remarkable, something that is astounding. Joseph is not set forth as the father, as the source of Jesus. Matthew calls Joseph what he is, the aner marias, the husband of Mary, of whom, literally out of whom, using the feminine relative pronoun, if you care, Jesus was born. All other people born in the world, 100% of them are all born uh, ek metras from a mother, and ek patras from a father. But Jesus alone 
is born ekmetros and ek pneumatos hagiu from Mary and from the Holy Spirit. Do you know, want to know what Matthew's interest is? He tells the story. His interest is in Mary's virginity. He wants us to realize the unprecedented, miraculous story, mystery of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Because a virgin birth is essential to assure us that when Christ is born, he is literally Emmanuel, God with us. So how does Matthew assure us of the virgin birth? There are at least seven ways that we see in this account. I say at least because I'm sure there are more if we look closer. There are at least seven ways that we see in this account in these verses of the way Matthew assures us of the virgin birth. Three of them we've already seen in the text. The first is the careful wording of Matthew's genealogy that we just looked at. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, ek plus the feminine relative pronoun, Jesus Christ was born, who is called Christ. There's no clearer way to say that Jesus was in the line of Joseph from David, but physically born only to Mary. Secondly, the protection of Mary's betrothal. Mary was expecting, there we go, Mary was expecting while uh, while. Or, or, uh, it says when in your text, but more literally, while his mother was betrothed, protected from impurity. Before they came together intimately in marriage, she was found to be through no act of her own with child. And that leads us to the third way Matthew assures us of the virgin birth, the explanation of the Holy Spirit. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if we keep reading the story, we'll discover at least four more ways that Matthew assures us that Mary was a virgin. The fourth way is this, the dedication of Joseph to do what was right in the situation. In other words, we see the truth of the matter in the way Joseph responds to the news that Mary is expecting. It says in verse 19, and her husband Joseph it says husband because he's legally bound to her. I mean, he, it would have to be a divorce situation for her to break this contract. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, secretly. Now, you sometimes hear people say, you know, Mary is expecting a child out of wedlock. Deuteronomy 22, uh, 22 uh, uh, speaks of stoning young men or women who have been immoral. And therefore, Mary is probably facing execution under law of Deuteronomy 22. I'm going to tell you, to be historically accurate, Mary may have been stoned for such a thing at a much earlier time in Israel's history. Had she been convicted of immorality? But here in the first century under Roman law, it is much more likely that Mary would not have been stoned. I mean, if you think about the pericope adulterate, right? The, the section in John 8 where the woman is taken in adultery and Jesus says, whoever is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Uh, notice the woman is not stoned at the end uh, of that story. She's forgiven by Jesus and told to go and sin no more. Mary, however, would have been publicly humiliated she would have been brought before her family and peers and her garments toward partway from her body to shame her. And she would have been lashed 
And after that, she would never have become anyone's bride. That is more likely what Mary faced, according to the Mishnah, which is the earliest collection of Jewish teaching on how they were to follow the law at this time in their history. But what if Joseph was actually responsible for Mary's pregnancy? What if he and Mary had been alone together before this time and Joseph was actually the father, which may have been what Mary's family might have at first suspected? Well, because they were under contract to be married anyway, Joseph may have offered some compensation to Mary's father with apologies, and Mary would have simply come to live with Joseph earlier than expected. That's probably how it would have gone down. But neither of those things happened. Mary was not exposed, and Joseph did not hasten the marriage. What happened instead? Well, Matthew says that Joseph was a just man. Literally, in, in, the, in the Greek text, it says he's a righteous man. And that means in the context that Joseph was interested in following the Jewish law. He obeyed the scriptures. He was going to do the right thing according to God's law. And doing the right thing in this case was to annul the marriage because it looked to him as if Mary could no longer righteously fulfill her part of the marriage contract as the bride. This demonstrates that Joseph could not have been the father. But the righteousness of Joseph was not a pharisaical righteousness because the righteousness of Joseph also motivated him, do you notice this, to be kind to Mary, not harsh and judgmental. He did not want to see her suffer public humiliation and exposure, perhaps as the Pharisees would have subjected her to. So in wrestling with what to do, he decided to secretly divorce her with the two required witnesses in the law and to wash his hands of the affair. And my point is, these are not the actions of a man who is guilty of immorality, not in this situation. These are the actions of a man who had every reason to believe that he was taking a pure bride. And as perplexed as anyone at the news that Mary was expecting and wanted to respond righteously, to move ahead with the marriage would have brought shame upon his family because it seemed that Mary had betrayed his trust and the trust of her father. To move forward would have been to promote scandal. In fact, we can see, did you pick up on that as John read John 8? We can see in the reading of John 8, and, and uh, actually some other places in John's gospel, that when Jesus was teaching and preaching, there were still rumors circulating about his origin, about his birth, particularly the identity of his father. That is why the Pharisees in John 8, 48 called Jesus a Samaritan. Why would they have said that? Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. They were suggesting that Jesus was the product of an illicit relationship between Mary and, say, a Roman soldier. And in 841, they say to Jesus, we weren't born of sexual immorality, suggesting that Jesus was. And here Jesus responds with one of my favorite comebacks in the Gospels. He says in 844, well, your father is the devil. <laughs> and your will is to do the, the, the devil's desires, the devil your father's desires. And Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When, he, when he, he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And the devil, the father of lies, to this day continues to spread the lie that Jesus was entirely of human origin, that he was just a man, and that's it. That the virgin birth could have not possibly happened 
But what we see here is that Joseph immediately assumed that Mary had been unfaithful, that she had not been the pure and chaste young woman Joseph and her family thought her to be. So we can tell by the simple, the, the simple facts of the story that Joseph himself had nothing to do with Mary's pregnancy. Matthew's story gives us a fifth assurance, the necessity of angelic intervention. Joseph is wrestling with what to do, and he finally decides, I'm going to divorce Mary quietly. That's the right thing to do. I, I'm, 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 she needs to, to know that this was wrong, but I, I'm not going to try to publicly humiliate her. And I, I just imagine Joseph, uh, don't add this to your snowball of the story, but I'm just saying, I imagine him you know, lying down in bed at night and just deciding, okay, Lord, this is what I'm going to do, and, and he's resolving in his heart, and he's going he's gonna to take action the next morning, and this is the time when the Lord comes to him through an angelic being. It says in verse 20, as, as Joseph continued these, uh, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. There's nothing wrong going on here. You don't have to worry about this. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. There's the phrase again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because Joseph was reasoning in all the right ways to the wrong conclusion, not knowing what God was doing, and it was something unprecedented and full of wonder. God had to send an angel into Joseph's dreams to explain to him what was really going on. You can't imagine it happening any other way. Somehow, a, a divine word would have had to be entered into the situation. Mary was not unfaithful. Her conception, as the angel said, was ek pneumatas hagiu, from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, the angel gave Joseph some additional information and instructions. Mary would bear a son, and that son was to be named Yeshua, which is shortened, a shortened form of the name Joshua, or as it comes to us through Greek via modern English, Jesus, Yeshus, Yesus. So many different ways it is pronounced in so many different languages. The name means Yah, which is short for Yahweh, is salvation. Now, it was no new idea that God's people had been waiting for centuries for this Savior to arrive. They desperately prayed for deliverance from their enemies, for the reestablishment of their kingdom, just like God had promised through his prophets. But what the angel told Joseph was actually something far better. This son, Yeshua, would save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus is at the climax of this Davidic line. There were so many who had become, who had come uh, before him, whom God had used to deliver his people from their enemies. David had subdued all the nations around him. Solomon was able to maintain peace throughout his, 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 uh, his reign. Abijah, Solomon's grandson, won a great victory against Jeroboam I. God defeated the Assyrian army under King Hezekiah. But the battle that these and other kings could never win was the battle over sin. The fact that they could never stand as righteous before God. So at the climax of the Davidic line, Jesus appeared, not yet as a mighty warrior to overthrow the Romans, but as the conquering king who would die and rise again to destroy the power of sin and death forever. 
That is the kind of remarkable eternal deliverance when God himself comes to dwell with us as our Emmanuel. But Joseph could have never known that Mary was divinely chosen to bear this child, the Emmanuel, if there had not been some angelic intervention. It was necessary because of the fact that Mary was still a virgin. Now, not only did the angel have to come to Joseph, demonstrating that something completely out of the ordinary is going on here, but Matthew then comments on the story at this point, giving us a sixth assurance that Mary is a virgin, the realization of Isaiah's prophecy. Matthew tells us that what was taking place, the birth of a Savior Jesus through a virgin, was foretold centuries earlier through Isaiah. So he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, here is where those satanic critics that I mentioned a few moments ago come in and they begin to say there's no reality to the virgin birth. The, the, a, a lot of the debate is about this text in Isaiah. In fact, the rest of Matthew's narrative is largely ignored in the debate. The focus is on the single word virgin. I want to look at this debate for just a minute or two this morning. If you look back to Isaiah chapter 7, the text that Matthew is citing, and I'll put it up there on the screen, of course, we find ourselves uh, in Jerusalem with King Ahaz on the throne. Ahaz is David's great, 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 great grandson. That's 10 greats, okay? Uh, he's 12th generation removed from, from David. And when Ahaz is on the throne, the kingdom of Judah is in grave danger. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, the king of uh, Israel, uh, the, I would say Israel, the, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, right? Because Israel and, and Judah are split. They have teamed up against Judah, and they're coming to lay siege to Jerusalem. They want to get Judah to go into a pact with them against Assyria. And Ahaz says, that's suicide, and it did turn out to be suicide. Judah wouldn't do it, so they're going to force him to do it. But Isaiah is on hand, and Isaiah assures Ahaz that God is not going to let anything happen to the kingdom. He's not going to let anything happen to Judah. All through the Old Testament, by the way, when you read these stories, you have to remember the Messiah is coming. God is protecting this line. And to offer some assurance, the Lord gives to Ahaz a sign. He, he tells him, I'll give you a sign that I'm going to protect you and the kingdom. So here is Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ask anything you want. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, I don't think Ahaz is being a, a righteous king here. In fact, Ahaz was one of the wicked kings. A actually, Ahaz here is, 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 is uh, showing this false piety. He doesn't really care. He doesn't want a sign from God. He's not interested, is the idea. So Isaiah is angry, and he cries out, Hear then, O house of David, not just speaking to Ahaz, but the whole line of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? It's interesting to know that this verse we quote so often at Christmas was actually spoken in a bit of frustration 
from Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. In other words, he's going to be having good meals. Uh, everything's going to be good. The land's going to be prospering. By the time he is old enough to refuse the evil and choose the good at, at an age where he begins to understand accountability and, good and what's good and what's wrong and so forth. For behold, the boy knows how to, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, resident of Syria, peak of Israel, will be deserted. So this is the sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and before the child is a certain age, old enough to be discerning about good and evil, resident and Pekah, Syria and Israel, will be completely destroyed. And they were. They were destroyed by the king of Assyria in 721 BC, not long after the sign was given. So here is what the virgin birth deniers say. The word translated virgin in Isaiah 714 is not the technical word for virgin. It's the word for young woman. In Isaiah's day, the prophecy was fulfilled when a young woman had a son and he was still very young when Assyria destroyed the northern, uh, northern Israel and Syria, taking away the threat against Jerusalem. Otherwise, why would it be a sign for Ahaz that God was going to rescue him? And, and the sign was 800 years later when a child was born. Okay, first of all, true. The Hebrew word Alma, translated version, is not Batula, which is the technical word in Hebrew for virgin. And true, in Isaiah's day, a young woman likely bore a son who was very young when Israel invaded northern Israel and Syria and destroyed them, saving Jerusalem. In fact, the son may have been Isaiah's son. In the next chapter, Isaiah takes a wife and has a son, though his name is not Emmanuel. Others say that Isaiah may be talking about Ahaz's next son. But even though both of these things may be true, that the Hebrew word Alma refers to a young woman and that there is likely a child born in Isaiah's time, this doesn't tell the whole story. First, the word Alma refers to a young woman, but always an unmarried young woman. That's never pointed out among the critics. If the word Alma is used, you would assume the young woman is a virgin unless there was some extenuating circumstance that was horrifying. And if we have the time this morning, I could demonstrate this to you in the text of the Old Testament. For example, if the word is used to refer to Rebekah when Abraham's servant went to find her to be Isaac's wife. It's used to describe the young sister of Moses who watched him by the riverbank before the princess of Egypt found him. The word always refers to an unmarried young woman that you would suppose is a virgin. This is the reason that when the Old Testament was translated into Greek 200 years before Christ. The translators chose to translate the word Alma with the Greek word Parthenon, which is the technical name in Greek for a virgin. That's why the story of Matthew doesn't get any discussion. And when Matthew cites Isaiah 7.14, he uses the word Parthenon also. The critics can try to pick at Isaiah 7.14, but Matthew is clearly making the claim that Mary is a virgin carrying a child. And by the way, even though Luke is telling a whole different part of the Christmas story, there's at least one huge point where Matthew and Luke line up. 
and that is that Mary was a virgin. Luke says that the angel Gabriel was sent with the news of the birth of Christ to a Parthenon, a technical virgin named Mary, who said, how can this be? I have never known a man. So yes, Alma is not the technical word for virgin, but that is the obvious way to understand the word in the context of the Old Testament. But there's more. Yes, there was likely a child born in Isaiah's time. That's the way prophecies worked. Often they had a fulfillment that was close to the time of the prophecy because the law said that if a prophet made a claim that it, that it didn't come true, he was to be executed as a false prophet and not one of the Lord's true prophets. But no baby born in human history could fulfill Isaiah's promise that God through this child could be with us, Emmanuel. When there are portions of prophecies that could not possibly be fulfilled except through miraculous intervention or through a person far beyond normal a normal human being, the prophecy was also pointing to something far greater in the future that only Jesus Christ could fulfill. This, Matthew says, is what Isaiah ultimately meant when he said that a virgin would conceive and that the child would be God with us. Now quickly, there's one more final assurance that Matthew gives to us to make the point unmistakably that Mary was a virgin and it's simply this, the abstinence of Joseph until Jesus was born. Notice how Matthew concludes this part of the story. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew says that Joseph was not intimate with his wife until she had given birth. He did not have to include that detail unless... As we've seen in every segment of the story, Matthew is very concerned to make the point that Jesus was conceived through no possible human agency. Even down to this detail. Like the other women who gave birth from Matthew, or, or, or gave birth uh, whom Matthew specifically names in his genealogy. We saw them last week, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Mary should never have been carrying a child. It was impossible. Just as these other women mentioned in, in their circumstance should not have been carrying their children. And in Mary's case, not just because it was an unusual circumstance, it was an absolute human impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. So these are the seven ways that Matthew assures us that Jesus was born of a virgin, the careful wording of the genealogy, the protection of Mary's betrothal, the explanation of the Holy Spirit, the dedication of Joseph to do what is right, the necessity of angelic intervention, the realization of Isaiah's prophecy, and the abstinence of Joseph until Jesus is born. Why is this so important? Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Why did Emmanuel have to come this way? Well, a virgin birth would not be necessary if a mere human being was born for us. If God were raising up a great deliverer like Moses or Joshua or Samson or David or Josiah, 
all that would be required would be for that person to be born into the normal human family and richly endowed with special gifts by God. That's all that would be required. But the virgin birth was necessary for God himself to be with us. Jesus had to be part of the human family while remaining 100% God. He had to be the God-man. Without being God, he could not have given his life a sinless, perfect sacrifice. But without being human, he could not have represented us as a human standing in for us, taking our sin upon himself, dying in our place. Both his deity and his humanity are equally essential if we are saved today. Without being born from a virgin, there would have been no pronouncement from the father at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Without the virgin birth, he could not have been the light that pierced the darkness and brought hope to the world. There was only one way he could be our savior, and that is through the miraculous, marvelous, mysterious virgin birth. The hymn writer said, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, this anew the song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When we look at the Christmas story and consider everything that Christ has done in coming for us, that's what ought to be on our lips. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for...